Are you interested in learning more about owning your own portfolio cash flowing rentals? If so, we invite you to take our free mini course, the Crash Course in Cash Flowing Rentals. When you take our mini course, you'll learn the strategies we use to build our portfolio. You'll also get to see several of our students featured who have successfully built their own portfolios as well. To take our crash course, link to semiretiredmd.com forward slash mini course, M-I-N-I dash C-O-U-R-S-E, or visit our website at semiretiredmd.com and link to the crash course on cash flowing rentals there. You may also want to join a waitlist for our introductory course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals, while you're at our website too. We'll see you there. This episode is sponsored by our brand new course called Fast Fire Bookkeeping for Real Estate Investors. Do you have a pile of receipts and a bunch of statements that are stacking up in your office and the pile isn't getting any smaller? Are your rental properties getting you closer to financial freedom? Do you even know how your properties are performing? Well, the answer to your problem is doing your books the right way, and that's what our course is about. We'll teach you how to set up your books the right way, not just for tax time, but also so you can unlock the insights that will help you maximize your cash flow. For more information or to sign up, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash fastfire bookkeeping. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. So in today's episode, Kenji and I are going to talk through a really a structured approach to decision making in real estate. But this is something you can use in every part of your life to help you make decisions and to see all sides of a potential choice. But what we're going to do today is use a structured approach to talk through really some specific real estate examples and show you how we would use it to think through the upsides, the downsides, and then also to decide in the end what the right choice is for us. Yeah, and this really comes from uh, working with uh, many, many students in our real estate course. And these examples come from their questions. Uh, And so we wanted to kind of show you how we help them think through some of these questions as opposed to telling them what to think, right? That's very much not what we do in our course. Uh, we really want to help people think through their own problems because, you know, they come to our course in a very unique situation, right? Their, their situation is very different from ours. So therefore, their, their solution is going to be different as a result. Yeah, exactly. And and what we feel very, very passionately about is helping people learn how to fish so that they're self-sufficient. And what I think you'll find is that actually you're already self-sufficient. You know, one thing about doctors and professionals in general is we are trained to really think critically about every decision. You know, a patient will come in with a set of symptoms. We're thinking through all the different options, you know, thinking about which ones are the worst ones and the scariest ones that we need to rule out. And then also thinking about which is probably the most likely to happen and then making decisions 
decisions based on that. So you're already trained to do a lot of this type of thinking. It's just putting it into a structured approach, which we actually really got from Keith Cunningham, who writes a book called The Road Less Stupid, which is phenomenal. He's the rich dad behind Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki's book, which you guys know we're big fans of, right? And so this is where this comes from is Keith Cunningham's idea of thinking through second order consequences. So this is where we pull the approach from that we're going to use today. Yeah. And I did want to point out that I don't know what it is about real estate, uh, but when it comes to real estate, I think one of the things that our students kind of come into our course, they come in and tell us, you know, I'm a complete newbie, right? And okay, so I understand you're, you're new to real estate, but one of the things that we're trying to emphasize here is that you're not new to problem solving, right? You're a veteran at problem solving. And that's really what it takes, right? Is to be able to solve these problems. And we'll give you the structured approach to how to solve problems. But it's just applying that problem solving to real estate. And again, you'll be able to solve uh, any of these problems. So what is the structure? So it's actually a series of three questions that you ask yourself whenever you're faced with a decision. Number one is what are the upsides of making this decision? And a lot of Times we can all see the upsides and that's what we're focusing on. And maybe we see 10 different upsides and we get really, really excited and, and we just take off running with that decision. But what we're missing are the next two questions. And those are, what are the downsides? And the last one is, can I live with those downsides if they actually occur? And so that's Keith's basic three question structure. What are the upsides? What are the downsides? And can I live with the downsides? And then we added a little bit of a complexity to that um, because we also not only wanted to think about what are the upsides, but we wanted to think through how can we make those more likely to occur? Are there things there, there are actions we can take to help support some of those potential upsides? to become a reality. Mm -hmm. And same with the downsides. You know, when you're asking yourself, what are the downsides? Well, is there anything you can do today to mitigate the risk of some of those downsides occurring? And that's something actually probably one of our major focuses in real estate is whenever we're looking at deals, we're thinking about the downsides and then we're going and taking the action to mitigate those um, to make them less likely by get usually by getting more information is how we do it. And then, you know, can I live with the potential downsides? I think that's a really, really important one because, again, you're just thinking through if the worst case scenario happens, like how am I going to be able to deal with it? What am I? What do I need to put in place right now maybe to be prepared for that? And maybe that's as simple as like, okay, it's going to involve a huge, you know, money suck and I need to have the money set aside. But there are things, there are actions you can take as you're thinking through each of these steps that help you actually be better prepared if something were to happen. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. Uh, some of our students will invest in, let's say, short-term rentals, and they'll invest in something that works really amazing as a short-term rental. The numbers check out, you know, really good cash flow. But the downside, if you think of, you know, so you everybody's thinking about the upside, the cash flow, right? Okay. But the downsides, right? What are the downsides? One downside is there may be a regulation change, right? Mm. And all of a sudden you can't rent your short-term rental out as a short-term rental. So what if that happens? What are some things that you can do to mitigate that downside? Well, one of the things that you can do to mitigate the downside is to think about, okay, if if I can't use this as a short-term rental and I convert this to a long-term rental, how do the numbers work? And, and what you want to do is then ultimately you can do that. You can think through that on the day that you're or before you buy that short-term rental. And if you think through that beforehand, then what you may end up doing is choosing properties that work both as a short-term rental, 
but also as a long-term rental. So it still cash flows as a long-term rental. Uh, so that's, again, one way to mitigate some of the downsides of that specific investment decision. Yeah. And I want to reiterate also, again, that everything is going to come down to personal choice and personal comfort, because even when I think about our latest short-term rental purchase would never, ever work as a long-term rental, like numerically, the numbers don't work, but we know that. And for us at this stage in our lives, we're willing to accept that downside and we have enough funds that if you know, we could no longer operate it as a short-term rental, we feel really comfortable. We'd just turn it into a primary residence or a second home for ourselves. So we've thought through that downside. And for us, it's okay at this point with one short-term rental. But if somebody is in a situation where they own 10 short-term rentals, those are the only properties and they don't have a whole lot of funds set aside and they're all located in one location. And then all of a sudden there's no longer any ability to have short-term rentals. They're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, and for sure, yeah, for us, we can live with those downsides. Mm-hmm. So kind of, kind of to think about that structured approach, you know, uh, for that for us, we can live with that downside of not being able to operate a short-term rental anymore. So we each brought a couple examples um, to talk through. Now we've already talked through short-term rentals, which wasn't yeah. planned. Uh-huh. But um, what I really wanted to talk about was to start with was 401k and liquidating your 401k. So for those of you who don't know, Kenji and I made the decision about two years ago now that we were going to liquidate a number of our 401ks. And we did a lot of thinking about it from our side and like, what are the potential upsides for us, downsides for us, and the, you know, could we live with those downsides? And what we see is a lot of times students will say to us, oh, you liquidated your 401k, we're going to liquidate our 401k too. But what worries us about that, if you're not thinking through all these questions for yourself um, and not thinking about your personal situation, you may miss something and it may have been a good decision for us, but not for you. And so let, let me just broadly talk about upsides for 401k liquidation. So for us, when we thought about like, should we do this? The upsides for us was we needed cash, more cash to invest in our real estate portfolio. So that's really what we wanted. That was the upside. Well, and, and then part of that upside was that we had the confidence that we could make more money with our rentals than we would with the 401k. So that's also part of that upside. Yeah. And so for us, you know, the first year that we started investing in real estate, I wouldn't have felt comfortable with that because I wouldn't have been as confident in that upside. Right. And so then we thought through the downsides. And for us, you know, there was state income taxes, which luckily we didn't have. Actually, when we came up with this 401k idea, we were living in Hawaii at the time. We actually didn't liquidate our 401ks until we moved back to Washington state and there was no state income tax. So so we mitigated that downside, right? We said, okay, this is a downside. This would be one reason we shouldn't liquidate our 401ks. And the way we mitigated it, we said, okay, we're going to wait until we move back to Washington and move out of this high state income tax, you know, state of Hawaii. uh, And then we're going to liquidate it once we move to Washington, where we can completely eliminate that state income tax. So it's no longer a downside. Yep. The next downside we thought about was federal income tax. Um, And what we realized, because Kenji has real estate professional tax status, is if we took that lump sum from our liquidated 401k and took it and made it a down payment on a property that we bought that year, we would pretty much be able to write off with bonus depreciation all of that 
that money that we liquidated and shelter all of it from federal income taxes. So again, for us, it made sense because we now had a way to deal with that downside, which was we have real estate professional. We have to use every single dollar of this money as a down payment for a property. Yeah. So for our students and for anybody thinking about doing this, right, you have to kind of go through this structured approach, right? Think about what is the upside for you and then think about what are the downsides for you, right? And think about, you know, what state you live in, right? Think about, do you have a plan to shelter that income tax that you're going to be hit with, right? And then what else, you know, do you have the confidence that you can do more with that money than you're going to be doing in, you know, with that money just sitting in a 401k? So uh, again, every everybody's in a unique situation. Everybody has different skill sets in terms of being able to make that investment work. So you got to think about all those things when you make those types of decisions. Yeah. And so there were a lot more, there's a lot more uh, Mm -hmm. thinking time we did on this, but just thinking through like, could I live with the downside? So could I live with the downside of liquidating my 401k in Hawaii? No. So I didn't do it. We didn't do it. And could we live with the downside of having to pay federal income taxes on, you know, that liquidated portion of our account? The answer is, Yes, we would have had to live live with it if we couldn't have found a property, but we were very confident if we did liquidated our 401k early on in the year that we would have the adequate time to go out and find a property. And so so we thought the odds of that happening were low, but if it had happened and we had never found it, we had to be willing to live with it. So the next example we bring to you is an example that we've had a number of students uh, actually come to us with as well, is that they're going to buy a property or they're they're going under contract with a property and they're going into the inspection period and the seller says, oh, I have this inspection report. It's actually an inspection report that I paid for or that the, maybe the previous person under contract paid for. It's you know a month old. Why don't you just use that instead of doing your own inspection? So a lot of students have said, well, what, what should I do? So number one, thinking through the upsides, right? The upside of using an inspection that's already been paid for and done is you, you save that inspection cost, right? And you save that time and energy and effort um, on everyone's part. The downsides, though, are significant when you think through them. So number one is that the, the home seller may have actually gotten an inspector who was, well, they were being paid by them. And maybe they did a, a, you know, halfway decent inspection, but they actually missed something. You know, maybe they weren't actually a rental property inspector. um, And that wasn't their focus. They were a primary home residence inspector. So they didn't know even what to look for. So there's a lot of potential problems with the inspection that you may not see or may not even know about if you just accept it blindly. Yeah, I think another thing is that you don't really know if that inspector is necessarily on your side. And what I mean by that is that when we go into the negotiation period, right, we're 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 always negotiating. We're always kind of fi- trying to find the angles. And one way you can find those angles for getting a better deal and negotiating a better deal is to have an inspector who's on your team who is working with you to identify things that you can then counter with the seller on. And you can basically go back to the seller and say, hey, our inspector found all these issues, right? And they estimate that these things are going to cost, you know, whatever it's going to cost. So we're going to need a discount off of what, you know, what we had offered you originally, because this property is not just not worth that anymore, right? And so therefore, if you think about it in that context, if you're just inheriting a report, 
that's not the same as as working alongside your inspector and having them uncover issues with the property and have it be as part of your kind of negotiations. Again, completely different you know situation. And for for me, that's a big downside. You know, I would not want to miss that opportunity to work with an inspector who's on my team, who's trying to help me negotiate an even better deal. Right. You lose negotiating leverage. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, can you live with the downside, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So for us, when we think through the upsides and the downsides, I'd rather spend, let's say $800 on inspection and maintain my negotiating power and make sure there wasn't anything missed. Because when I think through, you know, the potential downsides, if there was something major missed, like a plumbing issue that was going to cost me $5,000. Like I'm not willing to accept that downside. And so for us, it's a really clear decision. We'd rather pay for our own inspection and just make sure we maintain those upsides. But other people make a different decision, right? And maybe there's other information in, you know, specific to this deal that they're very confident in the inspector or they're in a rush or they know there's, you know, 15 other people who have backup offers and they decide that they're willing to accept the previous inspection report. So each person makes their own decision. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to caution people on is that you tend to start making rules once you think through something once and you start to make rules. And I think I want to caution people on that as well, right? Because you know it's very easy for us to say, okay, we always get our own inspection, right? And I almost said that, right? But I think the problem with that is that there may actually be situations where it just makes sense, right? You just you, know, you just take somebody else's inspection. I'll give you an example uh, with our community. One, you know, when a student uh, has a deal that they don't want to go through with for whatever reason, but it's not a bad deal, right? Then they can actually pass that along to another student. And since it's a community, we all, you know, a lot of us people trust each other in the community. And if the inspection just happened and they're educated in the way that we've been teaching people about negotiations, then sure, that might be a situation where I might just take somebody else's inspection report. But I would ask those questions about who is this inspector? You know, were they thinking about the negotiations ahead of time? I would be asking those types of questions. uh, And how long ago it happened, right? If it's like a month and a half ago versus last week, that might be different too. Yeah, but again, the the point I wanted to make was that, you know, it's very easy, not just in this situation, but a lot of situations where it's very easy to fall into the habit or, or fall into the trap of creating a rule and and just saying, okay, I'm going to always stick to that. Like I, I think about people talking about buying old properties, right? They get burned once with an old property. They're like, okay, I don't buy a property that's uh, less than 19, you know, that was built before 1920s, right? Always, right? Well, What if that 1920s property was completely renovated and every single piece of wood in there is completely brand new or every single appliance is brand new? Would you not buy that property, right? So again, creating rules, I think ultimately doesn't help you. You're eliminating thinking when you create rules. So I just want to kind of point that out, definitely caution you on making rules. Good point. This episode is brought to you by Tyler Curley of Path Insurance Solutions. Tyler is who we go to for all of our insurance needs. We first started working with Tyler when we bought our first investment properties. And since then, he has not only helped insure all of our investment properties, he's also helped us with our personal insurance needs as well. Tyler's an invaluable member of our team for our investment properties because he's so knowledgeable and he also finds you the best policies without breaking the bank. So the next time you need insurance, be sure to reach out to Tyler at tyler at pathins.com. 
This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close a deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. All right, so uh, let's talk about uh, uh, another one that uh, another student example, uh, and especially when people come into our course early on, uh, uh, this this is a topic that uh, comes up all the time, which is uh, this fear of using debt, right, and using and getting loans, and and oh, I can't imagine going from having just paid my student loans to all of a sudden I I have ten properties with ten loans, millions of dollars in debt, right, and mm-hmm. so I think that. That's one of the things that a lot of people come into our course with this fear of reaccumulating debt after having just paid off student loans. Right. And that's where their thinking stops, right? right. It stops in the fear. And then I can't use debt. Debt isn't good. Let us, let's stop there. But let's look at the upsides of right. using debt, right? And the major upside is, is leverage. I mean, when you're able to take, you know, 50,000 of your own money and buy a $400,000 property and the, you know, and use that leverage, all of a sudden you have created such a vehicle for yourself for wealth because now you're getting all of the upside. So that property, let's say has some market appreciation or you force some appreciation on that property that's all yours and all the tax benefits with like writing off bonus depreciation you write it off on the whole four hundred thousand dollar well the property part of the four hundred thousand not just on the portion that you put down that leverage is what allows you to grow so quickly and so if you give up that upside you're going to grow your portfolio much slower yeah and you can model this uh, and, and if you really wanted to understand the upside you can model this out and see you know, if you kind of put two people next to each other, one person using debt and the other person not using debt, you know, the person that uses debt is going to grow their portfolio and their wealth so much quicker than the person who doesn't. Uh, and so that's the upside. And of course, there are downsides, right? And you have to think through those and your own unique situation. I know that for religious purposes, some people can't actually have debt, right? So it's a very unique situation, a very personal situation. So therefore, in, the, in that situation, you have to honor that. But again, everybody needs to kind of think about their own unique situation and and think about those upsides and downsides. Right. And so what are some of the downsides of using leverage, right? You're, you are giving money to the bank, which potentially would have been money in your pocket, right? If you went and bought a property for cash and your rent, your tenor, tenant paid you every month or rent check, you know, more of that rent check would end up in your pocket and less would go to the bank. So that's definitely one of the downsides. Now, what you have to decide is, is that downside, are you able to, you want to accept that downside in and allow yourself to grow your portfolio faster, or is it not worth that balance for you? For sure. Yeah. And the other thing that we talked about earlier was, can you mitigate that downside? Right. And one of the things that we teach in the course is, you know, you always want to be trying to increase your revenue and decrease your expenses. And in essence, what you're doing is increasing the cash flow that your property generates. And so, and when you do that, you actually force appreciation. So your property is actually worth more. So you might start out with a 75% loan, right? 
but your property appreciates so much that that 75% loan could maybe be you know, a 50% loan, right? Compared to the value of that property, because you've appreciated that property so much. So, so therefore, you know, if you think about it, going from 75 to now 50% uh, loan to value, that's not as scary as, you know, being at 75%, right? And so therefore, you can mitigate that downside by increasing the value of the property and also increasing the cash flow of the property to make it easier to make those loan payments. Yeah. And I think another thing that people who really are debt avoidant um, are worried about is that mortgage payment, right? Mm -hmm. Having that mortgage payment that they have to make every month. What if something happens and they can't pay, pay that down anymore? And you can partially mitigate that as well by doing like a 30 year loan instead of a 15 year loan. We see a lot of people who are just like, I want a 15 year loan. It's going to save me so much money, I'm going to pay it off. But that is a little bit higher risk when you think through the potential downsides. If you do have that vacancy, now you have a bigger payment every single month that you have to handle. And so it may be that you mitigate that risk by going with a 30-year loan instead. Yeah. All right, let's uh, tackle the final final student example. And actually, we're going to break this up into two parts because uh, sometimes we see excessive optimism when they approach deals, and sometimes you know we we also see excessive fear. And so, ultimately, what what I'm talking about here is a student finds a deal and they come to us, and either when they do the inspection, they find that the property is a disaster, and they have this kind of emotional gut response that they just want to run away versus another student who comes to us and says, you know, look at the numbers on this deal. This deal is amazing. And they don't think about the downsides, right? Uh, and so let's talk about uh, each of those. Uh, first, let's talk about the student who comes to us uh, who finds a promising property, but they, they go into the inspection and the property is a disaster, right? And there's foundation issues. There's just major damage, uh, water damage, let's say there's mold. So they look at that and they go, oh my gosh, their gut reactions, I, I can't do this deal. I got to run away, right? And so what do you think about that? So let's, ap <laughs> let's apply the, sure. the structured approach, right? What are the upsides of staying in that property? And it yeah. may be hard to kind of see the upsides at right. that point, um, but what are they? Well, one potential is you could negotiate the price so low at that point mm -hmm. with all these issues that that the buyer, uh, sorry, the seller is now aware of. So they have to tell the next potential buyer that there are these issues. You could potentially negotiate the deal and the price down so much that it actually becomes a great deal with great returns. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, I, I think about a completely clean property, a property that has no issues. You have no negotiating leverage, right? But if you have a property that's a disaster, you got a lot of negotiating leverage because you know your gut reaction is going to be the same as you know even you know the next investor and the investor after that. It doesn't matter if you're an experienced investor or a new investor, an experienced investor is going to feel that same kind of gut reaction like, oh man, this thing is a headache. But the difference is the experienced investor turns that around and goes, okay, well, how can I, how can I mitigate this situation? Right. And that's what Leite was talking about, which is you can just get really aggressive with the negotiations and you figure out at what point will that deal work for you? I mean, would a 50% discount, would that all of a sudden, you know, would that work for you, right? And it could, right, in that situation. And, and imagine, right, if you can get that, then, uh, then all of a sudden that deal looks a lot more attractive and there's a lot more upside. Right. 
another thing that you really can think about is the tax benefits. So if you have a real estate professional and now it's got all this work you have to do and you start and you do that work, a lot of that work you're going to be able to write off on your taxes. So now you've created even more tax losses than maybe you thought you would originally. And potentially that's forcing some appreciation now. And so that's another potential upside. Yeah, for sure. Okay. What are the downsides? So the downsides are, well, if you can't get the person to negotiate with you like that, then you probably are going to walk away from the deal. And so now you've lost that time, energy and the, and the money for the inspection. That's a potential downside. Mm-hmm. Um, another potential downside is the work required for rehabbing that property or fixing it up, right? It's going to take your time, energy, and effort. Now that might be an upside for you if you want real estate professional and you need all those hours to Mm -hmm. justify it, but it could also be a downside. One way you could mitigate that downside is you could ask for the seller to actually get some of these things fixed before you even take over ownership of the property. And that would be your risk, your mitigation step for the downside. Yeah, I I really love uh, thinking through this, right? Because you can see how each person's unique situation, right, results in a completely different perspective on whether it's an upside or downside, Mm -hmm. right? So we're just talking about real estate professional. If you're a real estate professional, you almost want these properties. Well, actually, you do want these properties that require more work. And so somebody might look at that who's a real estate professional and go, oh, that's an upside. Whereas somebody who's not a real estate professional goes, oh, that's a downside, right? It's just so, it's so, so, so funny. And it's also, I think it's very unique. You know, you got to really think about, you know, what is your situation and apply that kind of the structured process to your own unique situation. Yeah. And I think when you think through, you know, can I live with the downsides? In this case, you you literally have the ability to walk away. So it's not like you have to live with just accepting the deal as is and, and being responsible for all these repairs. So you don't have that. I think the potential downside that we haven't mentioned is maybe there's something else going on with this property. It has all these other problems. Like maybe there's something else that we're not seeing that's going on. And so that would be the question I would ask myself in the, you know, can I live with the downsides? Let's say we do get all this repaired by the seller or we make all these repairs. You know, what if there's something else? Can I live with that potential downside? Because let's say the property is old, for example. And again, you can mitigate that. You can think through, well, what are the different you know, major systems of the house. Let me make sure that I've really got addressed all four of them and thought about the HVAC and thought about the roof and thought about the foundation and made sure that those are really, or the plumbing, the electrical, thought through all of them and made sure that those are the ones that I know what the details of what's going on. So at least I'm mitigating the largest part of my risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And another one that I think a lot of people miss is opportunity cost, right? Is that what else can you do with that money and time that you're going to be spending on this property? Uh, maybe there's a deal right around the corner, right? That is amazing that you're going to miss out on because your time and attention is focused on uh, on this one property, right? So that's something else you have to think about. Uh, I'm not saying that that should be the, the deciding factor every time because, you know, yeah, if you start thinking about, oh, there's another deal around the corner every time, then, you know, you're probably going to always be waiting for that deal around the corner. So, uh, you know, that's just definitely just kind of one of the factors you have to think about. All right. Well, then let's kind of shift gears to talk about uh, the other situation where a student will come to us and say, 
check out this amazing deal. Look at the numbers on this thing, right? And uh, <laughs> and I love this one because it's like, well, okay. And have you thought through, well, you clearly see the upside, right? That's what we call excessive optimism. Uh, you clearly see the upsides. Well, let's talk about the downsides, right? And and it's funny because, you know, it's it's usually pretty quick for us to identify the downsides. Like, you know, for example, uh, just, this happened recently. I pulled up a crime map. And I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with crime maps, but it was all kind of like, you know, this darker blue color on Trulia and that's not good. You know, ultimately you want it to be a lighter blue color. And if you look at the detail, it was like, you know, armed assault, right? It was the first one that just something happened just a, within a week ago. And so clearly this was an area that was not a great area to invest in, in terms of the vacancy. I'm not saying it was a bad area to invest in. It could be actually a good investment for somebody who is very familiar with the risks, who's comfortable with those risks. But for, for a lot of the students you know, in our course, you know, they're not going for those types of properties. But the way you, the way you calculate that in your, your cash on cash calculations is that you have to estimate a very high vacancy because that's what's typically going to be happening in these neighborhoods. And that's going to then drop your your uh, cash on cash return, uh, and it's not going to make the deal look as good anymore once you factor in the correct vacancy. Right. So one of the downsides is that there may be a higher vacancy rate, and mm -hmm. often there is a higher vacancy rate. You're also probably going to have less likelihood of a market appreciation. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we don't bet on market appreciation, but if it's in a rougher neighborhood with high crime, the odds are less that you're going to have any sort of market appreciation to so mm -hmm. higher vacancy, lower market appreciation. So that's another potential downside. I might even say there's uh, there's going to be less forced appreciation too, because, you know, the question is, can you really count on, like if you're, if I'm, if I'm an investor looking at, looking at somebody else's property and they, let's say they've increased the rent significantly, they've increased the net operating income, um, I would still worry about that vacancy, right? And so as an investor, I might, you know, I might discount their, you know, their increased income that they've kind of generated, increased rents. I might discount that with a higher vacancy rate and it may just ultimately nullify everything they've done. Uh, and therefore I kind of question whether or not you even get that forced appreciation, you know, as an investor buying a property in, a, in an area like that. So then the last question is, you know, can I live with the downside? And I think that's actually one of the strengths of the cash and cash calculator is actually you can build in the downsides. Let's say you put in 20% vacancy. Can you live with that cash on cash return? Are mm -hmm. you willing to deal with that? And if the answer is no, well, now you have your decision. So that's part of the, I think the strength of the cash and cash calculator, it really keeps you honest to look at the potential downside situations. If you, if you run, you know, the different scenarios, right. And we always do this with properties. Like we have our property manager saying, yeah, you can rent this property at this much per month. If we don't quite believe it, we run different scenarios with our cash and cash calculator to look at, yeah, the best case scenario, certainly, but the worst case scenario too, and make sure we can live with that. Yeah, for sure. Well, that wraps up this episode of Rich Doc, Poor Doc. We hope we gave you lots of good ideas about how you can use this really structured approach of what are the upsides, what are the downsides, and can I live with the downsides when looking at your real estate portfolio? And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you tell your friends about it and subscribe. And we'll see you in the next episode.
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.